The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. We continue our coverage of the 75th anniversary of D-Day on the 6.30 Ched Afternoon News. That one by request, Vera Lynn. And what a song that one is, and one of the most popular songs uh, during that era as well. Uh, thank you, everyone, for texting in so far. I will get to uh, sharing some of your stories coming up. Uh, you can get a hold of me at 6.30, But our next guest is... A tour guide in Normandy, France, Paul Woodage, grew up in England, but fell in love with military history and now offers his insight to those who come see the battlefields, the cemeteries, and the museums firsthand. He joins us from Caen, France today. Paul, welcome to the show. What was your day like today? Well, I had a strange one because it was all media work. So I was in Caen today uh with the BBC commentating on the uh, the various events in Bayer and Juno Beach and the American Cemetery. And uh, so I, I wasn't actually at the events, but I was watching them. So when you were watching them, what was going through your mind? Um, I have to say, I had been worried for a long time leading up this anniversary that it was going to be too politicized this time. There's a lot going on in the world and, you know, Brexit in the UK and, and, and things going on in the States and Europe. And I, I was just hoping that none of the leaders went too, too much with modern affairs and just kept it about the guys. Because to me, this is the anniversary that is all about the veterans. Because we've been saying that for several anniversaries, but mm-hmm. this one, the 75th, is the last one they'll be here in, in any kind of numbers. And um, what, when, what began your interest in military history? What began your passion for doing what you're doing? It's very simple. My great, uh, great uncle landed on Sword Beach. So mm-hmm. I first came here at 13 or 14 years old with him. And uh, he showed me where his foxhole was and where he killed his first German and where his best friend was wounded. And as a 13-year-old boy who grew up playing with toy soldiers and toy tanks, it was the best thing ever. And uh, it, it seemed exciting at the time. And then as I got older and realized that war isn't particularly exciting, it's horrific and awful. And it, it, but it became an obsession, really. Um, and I've been looking at it and studying it ever since. So you, um, you tour people around, you do battlefield tours, that sort of thing. I, I want to talk to you um, about a couple of different things. But um, for you, you, you do do a Canadian tour. You do one. Uh, and you say that you enjoy doing the Canadian tour. Tell us why you enjoy it so much. Uh, first reason, it's a very uh, logical tour to take because it's one army going in one direction. It's very easy to follow. Uh, with American or British, you've got different beaches, different directions. The Canadian story is is landing on Juneau, pushing in towards the Falaise Gap. So it's logical and, and easy to, to, to get your, your brain around. But the more important reason is I think it's the unsung story. Um, I think British, we don't, the British don't talk about the Canadian uh, contribution. Americans don't tend to talk about it. And Canada took on a, a beach on its own uh, with the smallest um, 
population to provide an army, tackled, it has to be said, the most deadly Germans from the second day onwards, the 12th SS Hitler Jugend Division, who were not very nice, as we know. And I don't think their achievements get enough recognition. Mm-hmm. So we always feel, as tour guides, that we're, we're taking people to places they don't always go. And I find even Canadians, like British, have a bit of a, an American version of history in their minds, saving private Ryan, that type of thing. So you, you feel like you're really helping to educate. So, Paul, tell us about that day. Tell us about uh, June 6, 1944 for the Canadians. From the research that you've done, from the, the speaking with the veterans that you've talked to, uh, what, was, uh, what were the hours leading into the storming of, of Juneau Beach, coming ashore on Juneau Beach? And in the days that followed, what did they look like? Well, the Canadians have a, a somewhat unique um, approach to it because although the troops involved on D-Day hadn't been involved personally in Dieppe, it was a different division, that, that ghost of Dieppe two years earlier was hanging over everybody in the Canadian nation. And so there was a real sense of this is a bit of a grudge match. We've met the Germans before and they bested us, and so this time we've got to best them. So I think there's a bit more tension and perhaps a little bit more pressure on the Canadians to, to make sure this one goes well. And then... And it was a tough landing. Uh, if you've ever walked the terrain of Juneau Beach, it's an urban environment, big high sea walls, and uh, uh, the, uh, the armoured vehicles didn't always arrive at the right time, and there was lots of deadly German machine guns, and 85% losses getting off the beaches for the first waves. Uh, and yet they made the furthest gains in land of any of the beaches, uh, further than off Utah, further than Sword. They didn't quite meet all their objectives, but they got further than any other uh, of the beaches did, and I think an American wouldn't know that. A British person wouldn't know that. I don't even know Canadians would know that. I think it takes me, a Brit, sometime to tell Canada to be proud of itself because you, you really did well on D-Day. Yeah, and and that is one of the things that I had found when I was there in 2003 and I put this documentary together and I was learning more and more and more. And at that time, I was in my 30s. I'm like, how did I not know this beforehand? What is the reaction that you get from Canadians when you tell them this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sense of, of pride, obviously, but also, like you just said, why didn't I know this before? Why, mm-hmm. why, why, uh, why has this not been told to me? And I think Canadians, I mean, I'm saying this as a Brit, I'm telling you your own history, but I think you're much more aware of the First World War and Vimy Ridge because your nation becomes... A nation. Canada, I suppose, yeah. really. And, and World War II somehow gets overshadowed by, World, by the, fir- the, the Great War. And to, to me, the Canadians are... are uh, a fascinating element of the D-Day invasion. And I often say to my customers, and, and, I, and I say, please don't, you know, fall into the cliche, and I'm, I'm not clicheing your nation, but you were all volunteers, you are tough, and a lot of the Canadian troops, they were lumberjacks and fishermen mm-hmm. and farmers, and I know it's a cliche, but it's a true cliche. And the British Army, we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel a little bit by 1944. We've, you know, been fighting in Singapore and Dunkirk, and, and we're pulling in office workers. It takes a lot longer perhaps to get them to a level of physical fitness. But you, your guys are a little bit bigger and a little bit older as well. That's another interesting fact. The average age is a little bit higher. So maybe they've got a few more have got kids back home. They've been married. 
So I think they're a bit more worldly aware of what's happening and the, and the reality of the war if you're 26, 27 compared to perhaps if you're 18, 19. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it makes sense, Paul. You know what, you touched a little bit uh, on the challenges that, or some of the challenges that the Canadians faced uh, with Juno Beach, just the, the way that it was, um, the way that it was built. It was, you mentioned that, you know, the urban setting. Can you kind of break down um, the differences of the five beaches and um, what challenges they presented? So running from west to east, Utah Beach for the American 7th Corps was isolated. It's the furthest away from the other four, and it had floodplains behind it, which caused problems. And there was a German division that could counterattack towards there, which is why the American paratroops landed behind Utah. So that's very flat, and the, the issue of the water. Then you go further east to Omaha Beach. Omaha is a long, curved beach, five miles long, with high bluffs behind it, and was... I guess, a natural killing field, and that's why it presented such a, an obstacle, because it was a perfect place for defenders to go. Then you move across to Gold. Gold is a little bit like Omaha, um, bluffs behind it, and uh, but some houses. And then Juno is filling in the gap between Gold and Sword. Sword to the east um, is the beach from which we're going to assault Caen, and, and then Juno also to the, on the right of Sword, the left of Gold in between, is filling up the gap. But it's not an ideal place. There's a river that comes out, the Searle River, into Courcel, the course of the Searle. And that, the river had deposited over thousands of years a, uh, a sandbar just off the shore, which meant that, kind of making it very simple, some of the landing craft couldn't come in uh, until the tide had come in a bit more, come up a bit more, because they couldn't get over the uh, sandbar and they couldn't release the amphibious tanks on the uh, the, the beach side of the sandbar um, until the tide had come in. So there was less armoured support on Juno Beach. And a big high seawall. I mean, if you're yeah. staying on some parts of Juno, like Santoban-sur-Mer, there's a sort of seven-foot-high stone wall ahead of you and barbed wire on top. So even if you can get across the 200 yards of sand, just getting over a wall is a huge obstacle. And uh, it's hard to see it these days because there are little cafes and touristy areas there, and sometimes you have to help with Canadian visitors to try and use their imagination a bit more because you don't need imagination, Omaha. It looks it looks terrifying, but Juno looks like a in England like a pleasure beach. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and that was what I was stunned with the first time I stood on Juno Beach, and there was kids playing in the water. There was families having picnic, and then you 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 recall the horror that happened there, and it was it was somewhat staggering uh, for me. Now, just down the road uh, from from Juno from Crucelle is is the Benny Sermer Cemetery, which is a Canadian cemetery where I think it's like two thousand and forty four Canadian soldiers are buried there. To me, it was a very incredible, very special place. For my listeners, can you can you um, Maybe how would you describe Benny Surmer? Well, it, it's one of the cemeteries that was chosen, and there were 27 normally, chosen for its location. Some ended up being established exactly where they had been burying men at the time with temporary graves. That's not the case of Benny Surmer. Benny Surmer was selected after fighting was all done and dusted. And it was chosen because it's, it's inland uh, a couple of miles from the coast. And from it, there are these sweeping views inland towards Caen, towards the high ground. And all the Canadians buried there 
well, I say all, most of the Canadians buried there were killed within sight of where that cemetery sits. Yeah. And there's a second Canadian cemetery south of Caen, Brettville sur Lays, mm-hmm. and again, most of the Canadians buried there were buried within sight of that cemetery. So they were both chosen for their locations, and with all the little trees and shrubs and flowers and roses, it's a beautiful place. It's, it, it, I, I don't think it's appropriate to have a favourite cemetery. I think that's <laughs> somehow not a right term, but... If you can have a favorite cemetery, it is one of my favorite cemeteries. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, I've talked about this on the air over the past couple of days, just how the French people keep those cemeteries so pristine and so beautiful. And and the reception that Canadians get uh, when they come to Normandy, France, uh, you see it obviously on a regular basis. Um, the, The gratitude is still there 75 years later, isn't it? Oh, definitely, and unique. And I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you. There is something special about the Canadian relationship with the French. It's partly because of the shared language and that, you know, you have the French-speaking troops who can who can get along a bit better. The British, of course, you know, my country, we have a checkered history with the French, a thousand years of warfare and mm-hmm. Waterloo and Napoleon and what have you. And the Americans were very new and, and exciting. But the Canadians, I've been attending ceremonies here for, for 30-odd years, and... There's something very meaningful at the Canadian ceremonies because they tend to get the kids involved and, mm-hmm. and the maple leaves come out and the red, white and blue, uh, not the red, red and white. And, and there's this connection that I think is uniquely Canadian between the French and uh, I, I, whether that's shared language or some kind of shared history, but there's definitely something special. The, the, the French who fly a maple leaf, you know they're really feeling special about it. Before I let you go, Paul, um, just as we, you know, as your day has is wrapping up uh, with the obviously with the with the time change, my day over here just really starting. Um, looking back at what you witnessed today with the ceremonies and what has unfolded over the past couple of days with the with a number of ceremonies. Moving forward, what is your hope that we will take from this seventy fifth anniversary? What we will reflect on, hopefully. 10, 15, 20 years from now? It's a very good question. I think we have to find a way of looking back at these events without the veterans. And it's sad saying that because I'm going to be having dinner with 15 American veterans in a few minutes' time. Um, but there will be an era when they're not here. And I think it's about handing the torch over to the next generation and, and the next the next generations and the kids and trying to make them realize that although D-Day is 75 years in the past, the the themes are, are so appro- uh, appropriate now, and what we can learn from it, and working together, I think, is the is the simple thing. And 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 Macron's speech today, which I heard, was all talking. He was hinting, not very subtly, at this idea of a United Nations and working together and mm-hmm. and and an international brotherhood. And I think it's it's the most important thing. Uh, Seventeen nations at least took part on D Day. They were republics and and uh, uh, royal uh, monarchies, and they have some left-leaning and right-leaning and yeah they all just put aside all those differences to defeat a greater enemy of the nazis and i think that's something we can take forward uh, i hope and I, I just i i i hope i'll be here in 10 and 15 20 years to see a bit of a change and it's somehow we've we've, we've learned something paul thank you for this today i appreciate it no problem at all it's my pleasure In the cold gray light 
of the 6th of June in the year of 44. The Empire Arch sailed out from Poe to join with thousands more. The largest fleet the world had seen We sailed in close array And we set our course for Normandy At the dawning of the day and You're probably wondering what the heck are you listening there to right there? Man in all our crew Well, this song what lay in store. was written by Jim Radford we had Today... He is a 90-year-old D-Day veteran. But on June 6, 1944, he was a 15-year-old galley boy with the British Merchant Marines when the Allies stormed Normandy. He wrote this song after marking the 25th anniversary of the invasion in 1969. Well, we had a job to do. Now the Empire Arch was a deep-sea tub with a crew of 33. The song was just re-released by the Normandy Memorial Trust for the 75th commemoration. Money raised from it is going to a memorial on Normandy. But here's the thing about this song, you guys. It's, tar- it's, chop- it's topping the charts in Europe right now. It has, it is outselling the newest hits by artists like Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran on Amazon singles charts. We towed our block ships into place and we built a harbor there. Mid shot and shell, we built it. Today, uh, the Canadian Chief of Defence Staff, General John Vance, said the story of D-Day in Normandy is not one of perfect, perfect execution of a flawless plan. It is rather the story of unflagging spirit under onerous conditions. It is the story of valour.